0: News of the Times, Murderous Mondays, Sinister Sidney Fox Welcome to News of the Times. In today's episode, it is 1929, Hotel Metropole, Margate. Mrs. Rosalind Fox and her son, Sidney Fox, are staying at the hotel. They oddly do not have luggage with them, but this is explained... That the luggage is being transferred from another hotel. "'In the dead of night, a fire erupts in elderly Mrs. Fox's room, "'and she is sadly found dead on her bed "'as a fellow guest breaks through the smoke-filled room to recover her. "'What unfolds is a disturbing and convoluted tale to track down the killer. "'This case involved Scotland Yard as they traced the murky background of both Sidney and his mother. A true, twisted tale involving dedicated detective work and the famous forensic scientist of his day, Sir Bernard Spilsbury. Sinister Sidney Fox, his extensive life of crime, culminating in the cruel murder of his mother, is today's episode of Murderous Monday. We hope you enjoy the show. Background Sidney Fox was born in 1899, one of four sons. The father left the family when Sidney was young. Two of the sons died in the war. The eldest son, William, seems to have remained estranged from his family. Sidney and his mother, Rosalind, seem to have a history of petty theft mostly through the cashing of fraudulent cheques with rosalind's pitiful pension of eighteen shillings per week it would seem a life of crime was her only option to attempt to live a lifestyle they both craved from the london chronicle the twenty second of march nineteen thirty career of crime fox many times in the hands of the police the whole history of Sidney Harry Fox and his several aliases was revealed. According to criminal records Fox, who is aged thirty-one, was born at Great Frensham in Norfolk and went to the parish school. At thirteen he embarked on a career of fraud and deceit which culminated in a series of swindles and forgeries that forced him into the desperate corner with a desperate issue. While he was still only thirteen, he was convicted of making a fraudulent collection for charity and was birched at East Durham. As a youth he obtained a post in a bank and committed a series of forgeries. He was given the option of prosecution or military service, He chose the latter, and while in a military hospital he stole a chequebook and induced several tradesmen to cash cheques which he forged in the name of an officer. He was arrested and sentenced to three months' imprisonment. After his discharge from the army he obtained a post in a bank in Whitehall, where he stole nearly four hundred pounds by ordering checkbooks for clients, and then forging checks and drawing money. He was sentenced at the Old Bailey to eight months' imprisonment in October 1918. In 1920, he was sentenced to nine months at Westminster Police Court for stealing goods by ordering them from a West End store and having them charged to customers' accounts. In 1922, he was sentenced to 12 months' imprisonment for staying at a fashionable West End Hotel as a man of means, as evidence of which he placed a registered letter in the safe. He forged another cheque in the name of an officer and was sentenced to 12 months at West London Police Court in 1924. At the Hampshire Assizes, He was charged with the theft of jewellery from a furnished flat, and was sentenced to eighteen months' imprisonment in March 1928. At times, he has posed as an old Etonian and as an REF officer. Fox's brushes with the law and lack of funds led Sidney and his mother to stay at hotel after hotel just out of the reach of local police. Generally, they followed the same plan at each place they stayed. Sydney would hand over an important sealed envelope for the desk to hold on to. They arrived without luggage, explaining that their luggage was on the way from their prior travels. The couple would run up debts whilst Sydney simultaneously would attempt to cash a number of fraudulent cheques within the hotel and around the town. Then, after a week or so, they, mother and son, would leave and make their way to the next place. The event. The unexpected fire at the Metropole Hotel caused an uproar in the seaside town of Margate. From the... London Daily Chronicle on the 5th of November 1929 Alleged unpaid bill after fatal fire, mother's death. Two days after the tragic death of his mother, Mrs Rosalind Fox, in a fire in the Hotel Metropole in Margate, Sydney Harry Fox left this town. Yesterday he was brought back under police escort, having been arrested at Norwich, and today before the magistrates was charged with fraudulently obtaining credit from the hotel to the value of 12 pounds 14 shillings it was stated that he stayed at the hotel from october the 16th to october the 25th and left without paying his bill only evidence of arrest was given and he was remanded in custody for 8 days Fox and his mother arrived at the hotel on October the sixteenth from France and Belgium, where they had been visiting the graves of two other sons of Mrs. Fox who were killed in the war. Mrs. Fox, a widow of sixty-three, then gave her address as End View, Lyndhurst in Hampshire Inquest evidence Fox said at the inquest on his mother that his address had been Cathedral Close, Norwich, but in future he would live at Lyndhurst. He told the coroner that shortly after retiring to bed on the night of October the 23rd, he smelt smoke, and on going to his mother's room, which adjoined his, he was overwhelmed with volumes of smoke. He rushed down the stairs, calling out, "'Fire!' and was met by Mr. Hopkins, "'a commercial traveller who rescued Mrs. Fox. "'Mr. Hopkins of Matlock Road in Leighton "'told the coroner that when he attempted to enter the room "'he was twice beaten back by smoke. "'Then he crawled in on his hands and knees "'and dragged Mrs. Fox into the corridor. "'Artificial respiration was applied, "'but she died "'shortly afterwards. "'Chief Officer Hammond of the Margate Fire Brigade "'gave it as his theory that Mrs. Fox "'had left some of her clothes near the gas-fire "'and that, catching a light, "'they had smouldered until the room was filled with smoke "'and she was suffocated. "'Interestingly, Fox had insured his mother "'just the day before the unexpected fire. In fact, within days it became evident that impoverished Rosalind Fox had life insurance policies placed against her with a total value of £8,000. One of the insurance inspectors, a former retired policeman now working for the insurance company, arrived to inspect the room and became immediately suspicious. He believed the fire to have been started by some newspapers placed under a chair within her room. He contacted Scotland Yard of his suspicions, whilst sending a telegram back to his company, stating, "'Extremely muddy waters, thereby halting any kind of payout to Fox.'" From the London Daily Chronicle, the 22nd of March, 1930, Sherlock Holmes' work, Ex-Policeman's Investigation, into the hotel room. Sidney Fox would probably never have been brought to justice, and there would have been no suspicion on his mother having been murdered, but for the detective abilities of an ex-policeman employed as an insurance official. Every known circumstance at the time suggested that Mrs. Fox had died as the result of the fire in her room at the hotel at Margate. At the inquest, the jury returned a verdict of death by misadventure, and Mrs. Fox was buried in her parents' grave at Great Frensham. Then one of the companies with whom Fox had insured his mother's life for £3,000 began to make inquiries before paying the claim. An ex-policeman, who had been employed as a detective in the Metropolitan Police Force, was appointed as investigator. He discovered that Fox always insured his mother when she was about to take a railway journey. This and his claims for £3,000 worth of insurance following his brother's death at Margate prompted the closest inquiries. Burnt Chair Clue The ex-policeman visited the hotel and examined Mrs. Fox's bedroom minutely. Burns on a chair suggested that the fire had started under the chair. This discovery was communicated by the insurance firm, whom the ex-policeman represented to Scotland Yard, who then began their inquiries. On instructions from the Home Office the body was exhumed, and as a result of an examination by Sir Bernard Spilsbury, the police formed the theory that Mrs. Fox had been murdered. Someone recollected having seen a charred newspaper in room 66, just after the fire was discovered. At the request of the police, a Margate rubbish dump was raked by a number of men, and beneath a ton of chalk and refuse was found a charred newspaper which was used at the trial as an important piece of evidence following this discovery fox was arrested scotland yard were interested and sent two investigators from the london daily chronicle the sixth of november nineteen twenty nine Scotland Yard asked to probe the Margate mystery. Widow who lost her life in a midnight fire. Hotel drama. There was a sensational development last night following inquiries by the Margate police into the death of Mrs Rosalind Fox who lost her life in a fire at the Hotel Metropole in Margate on the night of October the 23rd. Information which has come into the possession of the local police, was so important that it was decided to ask for the assistance of Scotland Yard. The Chief Constable of Margate visited Scotland Yard yesterday morning, and last evening Chief Inspector Hambrook, head of Scotland Yard's flying squad, and Detective Sergeant Ato left for Margate to take charge of the inquiries. The two officers reached Margate shortly after one o'clock and had a preliminary conference with the Chief Constable. Today the subject of their inquiry will be discussed at length and a thorough investigation begun. Scotland Yard begin by attempting to trace the antecedents of Mrs Rosalind Fox and her son Sidney. What emerges is a trail of travels and Deceits. From the London Daily Chronicle, the eighth of november nineteen twenty nine, Margate Mystery, New Disclosures. Widow's body may be exhumed tomorrow. Life in eight towns. Movements traced. Exhumation has been decided upon to facilitate investigations. The police believing it essential that every line of inquiry should be followed simultaneously the further chief inspector hambrook delves into the mass of information pouring into the office set aside for him in the local police station the more mysterious becomes the whole affair the movements of the dead woman before she came to margate on october the 16th have been traced to no less than 8 towns these are canterbury Dover Folkestone Norwich Colchester Herne Bay Southsea and London. It has also been found that her visit to margate last month was the second this year. She and her son were there for a few days in August when they stayed at a private house. Their wanderings. The wanderings of both mother and son have been carefully checked, and the police have important data as far back as June. They have not, however, been able to trace her travels on the continent. It is known that between June and October she stayed at hotels in each of the towns mentioned, with the exception of London. But in none of these towns, so far as people are aware, was it necessary for her to receive medical attention. This was not necessary until she came to Margate. Mrs. Fox arrived on the Wednesday, an invalid, and on the Sunday she fainted. It was then that a doctor was called in. Throughout the eight days she lived in the hotel, she was incapable of movement without assistance. When her son was not available to assist her up and down the stairs, she was helped by one of the hotel staff. She was gay, despite her infirmity. It was interesting to note that Mrs. Fox had previously been healthy and independent, but only began to fail when they arrived in Margate. The information pointed a finger to her son, Sydney. Whilst investigations are being pursued, Sydney is held on numerous fraud charges. The Home Office becomes interested in the death of Mrs. Fox, and Sir Bernard Spilsbury is called in to do a post mortem on the now exhumed body of Mrs. Rosalind Fox. Sidney Fox is charged with his mother's murder, and the case goes to trial. From the London Daily Chronicle, the eighteenth of January, nineteen twenty-nine, Room sixty-six, Mystery Sensation, Mrs. Fox strangled. Says counsel, life insured for three thousand pounds. In the opinion of Sir Bernard Spilsbury, Mrs. Fox died from asphyxiation by the hand. The facts all point to Fox as the man who murdered his mother. With these dramatic statements, Mr. Sefton Cohen yesterday opened the case for the prosecution when Sidney Harry Fox, aged twenty-eight, was charged before the Margate magistrates with the murder of his mother, Mrs Rosalind Fox, who was found dead in room sixty-six at a Margate hotel. At the time of her death, Mr Sefton Cohen pointed out Mrs Fox was insured for three thousand pounds by her son. This sum is later adjusted to eight thousand pounds as more insurance policies on her life come to light red globe in a room the court was held in the council chamber of the town hall a large wooden dock on rubber-tired wheels being brought in to accommodate the prisoner by the time the doors were open a crowd of about three hundred was waiting a large proportion of the queue being composed of women and girls. In the court, people stood six or seven deep, standing on tiptoe to get a glimpse of Fox. To the formal charge of murder, Mr G. E. Hindle, on Fox's behalf, pleaded not guilty. Mr. Sefton Cohen, or for the Director of Public Prosecutions, then began his statement, which took over seventy minutes. He dramatically described the discovery of the tragedy. Midnight Drama Shortly before midnight, he said, on October the 23rd last, Fox, who had been staying with his mother at the Metropole Hotel in Margate, ran downstairs from the first floor, shouting for help. He said that he believed there was a fire, and that his mother was upstairs. From his attire, which was a shirt only, it appeared that he had just left bed. Visitors staying at the hotel ran upstairs to the first floor, and were led by Fox into his own room, number 67, which was full of smoke. Then into room 66, this room was also full of smoke. One of the visitors, Mr. Hopkins, having tied a handkerchief over his mouth, very pluckily entered the room on his hands and knees, and in the darkness, for the only light there was was in the room appeared to come from a red globe on the opposite side of the room, he came upon the legs of a woman hanging over the side of the bed. He dragged the woman off the bed into the corridor where it was seen that she was apparently lifeless. Fox's Story of Tragedy There were no signs of the body having been touched by the fire and there was no physical marks of any injury. There were no teeth in the mouth. The smoke had apparently come from the carpet which was burning under the large armchair standing to the right of the gas stove. The chair itself was burning underneath. We'll be back after a quick break Inspector Palmer saw Fox in his bedroom and asked if he could give an account of what had taken place. His mother, said Fox, retired at about six. She asked for the evening paper and he gave it to her. He then went on to say, I lit the gas fire and asked if I should wait to turn out the light. She said, no, that would be all right. I retired at about eight o'clock and went to sleep. I was aroused about eleven-thirty by what I thought was a window rattling. I got up and noticed a smell of fire, and went to her room to see if it came from there. I found the room full of smoke. I saw a light near where the gas stove would be, and I entered the room, but was beaten back by smoke. Mr. Sefton Cohen continued that, at the request, a verdict was returned that death Was due to suffocation, from fire or from shock. The body of Mrs. Fox was buried at Great Frensham in Norfolk. On November the ninth, however, as a result of certain information which came to the knowledge of the police, it was exhumed, and Sir Bernard Spilsbury had made a very careful examination. Sir Bernard found recent injuries to the deeper tissues of the neck and tongue which were not visible on external examination at all. From the absence of any indication of soot in the inner surface of the air passages, and from the absence of carbon monoxide in the blood, Sir Bernard is of the opinion that death was not the result of the effects of fire, and further that this woman died very soon after the fire had started, if not before. The injuries to the tongue which he found could, in his opinion, only be caused by the larynx being forcibly pressed upwards in the act of throttling at a time when the woman was wearing her dental plates. The injuries to the neck and tongue, in conjunction with other conditions which he found could, in his opinion, only be accounted for as a result of manual strangulation. "'For Bernard Spilsbury will tell you,' continued Mr. Sefton Cohen, "'that, in his opinion, death in this woman was due to asphyxiation "'caused by strangulation by the hand. "'You can dismiss any possibility of accident. "'In regard to the possibility of suicide,' Not only is there no evidence that she had suicidal tendencies, but in the case of strangulation by the hands, all power and grip would be lost when the compression of the windpipe commenced. There remains the third method by which the woman could have come to her death, strangulation at the hands of some assailant. The submission of the prosecution is that the facts all point inevitably to the accused as the man who murdered his mother. Counsel's Challenge Deliberate and Carefully Planned Murder The case against Fox is that he has committed a deliberate and carefully planned murder, continued counsel. Mr. Sefton Cohen proceeded to outline the movements of Mrs. Fox and her son on their arrival in Margate. In conversation with the manager of the hotel on October the 18th, he said Fox asked him whether he could recommend a good solicitor for insurance. On October the 20th, Fox appeared disturbed about the health of his mother, and spoke to the manager. Dr Austin was sent for and found that there seemed to be nothing much the matter with Mrs Fox and he gave her a prescription for a tonic. Prescriptions dangerous. On October the 21st Fox purchased a second bottle of tonic and made a very odd statement to one of the clerks at the hotel. He came back with this medicine and said that the chemist had told him that Doctors' prescriptions were sometimes very dangerous, as they prescribed excessive amount of drugs, and that in this case the chemist had broken down the prescription which had been given him by Dr. Austin. You will hear from witnesses from the chemist that no such statement was made by them, and that the tonic was made up according to the prescription. Half bottle of port. Mr Sefton Cohen said that the suggestion of the prosecution was that at this time Fox was in desperate need for money. Towards the end of the previous month, he had had about £4 in notes, but it was clear that this had disappeared before October the 21st. In his original statement, he failed to make any mention of the fact that at nine-thirty that evening he purchased half a bottle of port. An empty bottle was found in the cupboard of his bedroom after the fire, and the lead-foil cap and tissue-paper cover were found concealed behind a gas fire in Mrs. Fox's bedroom. "'When Dr. Roche-Lynch is called,' continued counsel, He will tell you that as a result of his analysis of the organs of this woman, he found traces of a moderate amount of alcohol, which had been taken probably within an hour of her death. After buying this half-bottle of port, Fox went to the saloon bar at the hotel, where he remained until 10.25 p.m., having one or two drinks. He was seen by the night porter going up to his room at about 10.40pm. About an hour later he gave the alarm of fire, and it was Mr. Hopkins and the other visitors to the hotel who found the body and dragged it out of the room and extinguished the fire, and not Fox. That is, again, a somewhat singular piece of conduct. Life insured on the previous day, total of three thousand pounds payable in event of accidental death. Another curious thing about Fox's statements to the inspector, continued counsel, is that he makes no mention of the fact that he had on the previous day insured his mother's life against accident. Mr. Sefton Cohen said that on October twenty second. Fox called at the head office in London of Mrs Pickford Limited and filled in a form for a policy with the Ocean Accident Guarantee Corporation for accident insurance for tourists and travellers. This proposal form was for his mother, and this particular policy is generally taken out for one day only, its purpose being to cover journeys by rail, or otherwise by the injured person. By the payment of a premium of two shillings, cover could be obtained for accidents involving loss of life, in which case compensation payable was £1,000 for loss of life and loss of one limb £500. Policy extended. Having filled in this proposal form, Fox asked the clerk to make out an insurance policy to cover the full day of October the 23rd up to midnight. On the afternoon of October the 22nd, Fox called at 31 Berry Street in London the offices of the Cornhill Insurance Company, where his mother had been insured against accidents on and off by accused since October the 10th last For a sum of two thousand pounds in case of death and lesser sums in the event of accidents. He asked whether the policy could be extended up to October the twenty third. He called back later and was handed an endorsement of this policy extending the cover to midnight on October the twenty third. There was in existence a third policy in respect of Mrs. Fox. This was for ten pounds and had been taken out in the Wesleyan and General Insurance Company as long ago as 1913. Each of these companies received, within a short time of the death of Mrs. Fox, a claim by a solicitor acting on behalf of Fox. Question of motive. What is the explanation of all these insurances against accident taken out By Fox, in respect of his mother, asked Mr. Sefton Cohen. It may be that you will be of an opinion that they are consistent with a perfectly innocent motive. But it may be that you may think that he first expected it was probably that some accident would happen to her, and that as time went he decided to take the matter into his own hand. It is for you to consider whether in the case of this man there is not a strong motive in the sum of three thousand pounds, payable at a stated time on the accidental death of Rosalind Fox, this man who had no occupation, and who had expensive tastes for a man in in his position, and no means to gratify them, except— the joint pensions of his mother and himself, which amounted to 18 shillings a week. During the trial, Fox had a further six charges of fraud placed against him from cheques written in Margate and in Folkestone. As the trial progresses, gripping the national papers, the eldest son is called to give evidence. From the London Daily Chronicle, the 17th of March, 1930. Mrs. Fox's will story. Document leaving farthing to one of her sons. A will said to have been made by Mrs. Fox, the victim of the Room 66 tragedy at the Hotel Metropolitan, Margate, was read at Lewis Assizes on Saturday, when the trial of Sidney Harry Fox, for the alleged murder of his mother, was continued. Nearly all Mrs. Fox's property was left to the accused man, and the will added to my son, William Edward Fox, I leave the sum of one farthing, and sincerely hope he will never want his mother. William Edward Fox went into the witness-box, and said the body of the document was in his brother. Sydney's handwriting. Fox apparently believed to the end that he would be found innocent. He was not. From the London Daily Chronicle, the 22nd of March, 1930. Death sentence on Fox. How Insurance Company found the vital clue his long career of crime. In a tense silence yesterday, the curtain fell on the long, drawn-out drama of the mystery of Room 66, when Sidney Harry Fox was sentenced to death for the murder of his mother. Thus came, to an end, one of the strangest cases in the records of crime. The first clue to the crime was discovered by the investigations of an insurance official. To the last, Fox protested his complete innocence. It is now disclosed that Fox had a criminal record which began at the age of thirteen. I am innocent, Fox's last words before leaving the court. My lord, I did not murder my mother. I am innocent. Sidney Fox made this last dispassionate protest of innocence as he stared transfixed at the grim black cap today. There was no tremor in his voice, just the frenzied accents of despair. Then he turned abruptly and descended the steps to the cells. Mr. Justice Rowlett, obviously affected, wiped his glasses tremulously, and hastily removed the cap. It was his first murder trial. Tense moment. And so closes one of the grimmest and most complicated trials in criminal history. Lewis eyes has seen many famous murder trials, Mahone, Thorne, and others. But even they were less strange than this trial upon which were fixed the questioning eyes of every son or daughter who had loved a mother, and of every parent who has looked for love from their children, of every man and woman horrified by the cold, calculated murder of a helpless mother. Fox Sentenced There has probably never been a tenser moment in any court than when the jury filed back into the box this afternoon. The court was chilled with expectation. The scared eyes of the man in the dock searched the faces of each juryman as he filed in, and after an absence of an hour and forty minutes, pale and drawn, some with tears on their cheeks, they avoided that look, and their concern was so unmistakable that before the fatal question was asked, a whisper went round the court. Guilty. Fox Heard it. He swayed slightly and braced himself. Members of the jury, what is your verdict? The foreman pulled himself slowly to his feet, and in that pause the vastness of eternity spread out before Sidney Fox. Guilty, my lord! Fox glanced up quickly at the judge with a momentary flash of despair. Mr. Justice Rowlett fumbled for a moment with the black cap, which he was to wear for the first time in his career. Fox's jaw sagged. His sallow face went ashy pale. His defiance had disappeared. "'Have you anything to say why the sentence of death should not be passed upon you?' Word of doom. "'Fox?' Did not answer. He stood rigid with his hands clasped before him as if he were manacled. He licked his dry lips. The judge, in a low voice, repeated the dread sentence. As the words of doom, Fox's head fell forward limply onto his breast. But at the grim Amen, he raised it again, his lips trembling. "'his jaw rigid as he made his dramatic plea of innocence. "'I did not murder my mother.' "'A woman sobbed in the gallery, "'a man sagged limply in his seat, faint with strain. "'Then Fox turned on his heel at the tap of the warder's hand. "'He lowered his head again and added in an almost inaudible voice, I am innocent. He went slowly down the steps to the cell in silence. His emotion, which had had full vent during the day, was stunned by the verdict, which he had resolutely refused to expect. As he sat in his cell, quiet and speechless, while arrangements were made to move him to Maidstone Prison to await the carrying out of the sentence. Collapse at last After half an hour, the warder tapped him on the shoulder. He shook himself, shrugged his shoulders, and walked stolidly to the side entrance of the prison into the glorious sunshine and into the shuttered car. Then, and only then, did he give way to his feelings and as he collapsed into the seat he burst into sobs. His confidence had grown throughout the morning, while the judge, with his steel-rimmed glasses, kindly face and ready smile, had carefully set out the evidence for and against, weighing one against the other, stressing this point, dismissing that, punctuating his speech with an apologetic little laugh as he laboured some point. But the nerve strain on Fox found violent reaction when the jury retired, and he was escorted to the cells for a meal. He ate little, and gave way to tears and sobbing. When the jury's return was announced, he remarked, "'It's all right. I'll be acquitted.' Throughout the whole trial he was quite certain "'that he could never be convicted on the evidence. "'He had eaten well, but had slept irregularly, "'especially during the last few days "'when he was the only prisoner in Lewis jail. "'To everyone throughout the whole proceedings "'he proclaimed his innocence. "'I loved her very much,' he declared repeatedly. "'I would never have hurt anyone, at least of all her.' "'Whilst in prison for the murderer's mother,' More information arose regarding a possible murder attempt on a Mrs. Morse, from whom he had stolen jewellery and insured her life. But this charge is not pursued, so can only remain speculative. The standard appeal to the Home Office is made for his death sentence to be commuted to life in prison. The Home Office actually sent a team to visit Fox in prison regarding his mental stability. They concluded that Fox is sane and the sentence will remain. Sidney Fox, sentenced to death for the murder of his mother, was executed at Maidstone Jail on the 8th of April, 1930. That concludes this episode of Murderous Mondays, Scotland Yard, Case Files, Sinister Sidney Fox. We very much hope you enjoyed the show. If you did enjoy this show, we would be grateful if you could like or subscribe to our channel. We are passionate about historical crime and do our best to present interesting cases from long ago that go beyond the usual fare. For our listeners and subscribers, thank you. We so very much appreciate the many supporters and subscribers who have helped us to build this channel. The News of the Times team all appreciate each of you for your help. We upload four days a week. Saturdays are serial killer Saturdays where we do an in-depth look at a serial killer from our extensive database. The time spans of these ranges from as early as the mid-16th century to the 21st century and encompasses men, women, children, and couples who kill. Mondays are murderous, where we investigate in-depth the historical murder. Wednesdays are wicked, where we pool together stories of a similar theme, such as stories of murders by starvation. And Fridays are frightful, with stories that are grouped by geographic location, allowing us to share lesser-known, grisly crime stories. From all of us at the News of the Times team, thank you again for watching or listening. This has been News of the Times, and I am Robin Coles.